Ash Olaf. Hi guys, welcome back to the symposium. Today, where I'm delighted to start a brand new series um, on art, and today I'm um, happy to be joined by one of my uh, oldest friends, Kayla, who is a currently he's uh, just graduated from university um, doing history, but he's developed a strong passion for art and specifically painting. And I'm happy to bring him on today so we can talk about some of the work he's done, some of the people who inspired him, what his work means to him, and we can delve more deeply into um, some of his art. For all the pieces that we're kind of going to talk about, um, please do look at his Instagram page. It's KQ Huang Art, which is K-Q-H-U-A-N-G-A-R-T, no spaces or punctuation, um, on Instagram. And yeah, you'll find some of his pieces and uh, that we'll be engaging with if you just want to um, have a visual representation of the kind of content we're talking about. But yeah, without further ado, Kayla, how are you? Yeah, thanks, Ashwin. Thanks for having me on. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm fine and I'm really happy. I'm really excited because I'm always excited when we do a brand new series. And this one specifically got me excited because one of the ideas I had for starting the pod, beyond just kind of indulging, I guess, my own egotistical desire to hear my own voice, <laughs> um, is to have my friends on there to talk about some of the stuff that, that you know, interests me about them and to talk about um, some of the stuff that, that they do that's interesting. Um, which I think other people will find interesting as well. And then this is a prime candidate. I think you were one of the people I had in mind when I created the pod <laughs> as, so, as someone that I'd like, you know, want to talk to about what you're doing, um, because I'd always admired your artistic ability for a long time. And obviously that's only increased given how, you know, you're formally now an actual, in my opinion, a, a proper artist, given the kind of pieces you've done. Um, but yeah, talk to me. Um, how did you get into painting? Have you, have you, is it something you've always done since you were a child? Um, and, and why is it painting? Yeah, thanks, Ashwin. That's a very kind introduction. Um, yeah, so by way of introduction, I'm a third generation British Chinese um, and I'm an artist really exploring, trying to explore the cultural identity and heritage of the Chinese diaspora. Or at least that's what it says on my Instagram bio. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in exploring my own experience of being British Chinese. Um, I'm not representing anyone other than myself, but um, hopefully some of the themes I explore do resonate across the British Chinese community. Um, the Chinese diaspora and hopefully even amongst other minority groups because I'm focusing on themes such as integration um, and questioning a cultural identity really. Mm. Um, but I call myself an artist not because I'm professional or earn money from it but I think you know calling myself an artist is important for me because it motivates me um, but also focuses my mind really on the I guess the persistence and discipline that I feel I need in order to create. Um, but you asked me sort of when did I get into art yeah, I come yeah. from quite an artistic family. My dad's an architect. Oh, okay. So we've got yeah. art all over the house, really. I, I remember I used to go to my friends' houses when I was younger. I'm like, Where, where's your art on the walls? Like, where's yeah. your art? Um, so, you know, I used to go to museums and galleries a lot with my dad. And I've always, you know, I've always been making art. And that's usually painting just because it's the most accessible. Like, all you need is canvas and paints. Um, but I've only really recently been thinking about sort of sharing my art, um, going public, if you like. Um, and it's, I guess, re only recently during this pandemic lockdown, I sort of had the time to invest to do that. And I think that's probably because of two reasons, really. Firstly, um, I mean, the lockdown has given us, you know, that time to be able to invest um, in something that perhaps would be shoved to one side, usually. And I think that there's, I mean, this, this great quote by Sandra Oh, who plays, you know, the actress from Killing Eve. Yes. She yes. says, um, very good. Yeah. She says, creativity comes from stillness. Um, and the more I understand it, the more I realise that you have to work on it. 
And I just think that's so true. Like a lot of times people say, oh, I'm not strong, but you know, you can go to the gym and work on your strength. And yeah. I think creativity is sort of a similar thing. It's something that can be trained. And I think definitely like over this lockdown period, having the time to be more creative and think about ideas and paint really, I sort of, I guess, grown my creativity in that way. Mm. So I think is it kind of exercising it kind of like a muscle? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. I think I just I guess I dislike that idea when people just say I'm not creative. When it's I think it's something that you can, you know, train yourself to do and, and mm. be. I find that really interesting as a as a point of view, just because a lot of people perceive creativity to be something something either you have or you don't. You're born mm. with it or you're not. It's kind of like, you know, in, inherent speed when running. Mm. Um you know but but you you given you know an interesting and a very encouraging perspective that it is something you can exercise and increase um and i guess i guess um, the question then arises i know that you're you're musically proficient as well we um your violin is having uh, i play the violin as well um and you've been exposed to lo- a, a lot of other different types of art forms as well so why is it that you chose to channel this creativity through painting and why is it for you that painting is 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 the best medium or the, or the or the most convenient or whatever whatever reason you have what what why is it why is painting why not ceramics why not why not um, music yeah it's a good, it's a good question i think um one of the things that, like you say is convenience like it's it's sort of difficult to create sculpture when you're just at home whereas all you need is paints and canvas yeah um, to paint right but it's also you know i i've like i say i've grown up um going to museums and galleries and appreciating art um so there's that about it um, there's also something, so Yinka Shonobari, who, who we might get onto later, is mm. one of my favourite artists. And I like what he says about his art, how his, he says his skulls are really the vessels for his ideas and the best method really for transmitting those ideas. And I think mm. it's a similar thing with my painting. If I can sort of express myself and my ideas and sort of with the concept being almost the more important thing, if I can express that well through painting, mm. then what, what I sort of enjoy doing. And also the process, I, I I do just enjoy painting really and making art. So, so is is painting kind of just for you? So it's it's it starts off as a convenience thing, but it's evolved into perhaps a medium that does you know genuinely allow you to channel your creativity in a really effective way. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think for me, I guess the idea comes first, and then the medium second. It's kind of quite Duchampian, if you like, with yeah um, Duchamp's idea, you know, the con- conceptual art. Um, so I guess the idea comes first and then the medium second. So, you know, if a mixed media piece would better represent my art, that's probably what I would do. Um, but at the moment, I'm just in a period, I guess, where I've been doing a lot more painting. Mm. So so if you if you were, let's say, in a gallery situation, as you might be next year or when you, when you get, resume your studies, then you might start decide to branch out of painting. And uh, I mean, what kind of areas would you be looking to go into further? Yeah, so I guess when you have the idea that comes first, you have a huge range of possibilities open to you. If you can right. put that put that out in a, a mixed media format, there's artists, you know, creating um, video installation work, sculpture in all sorts of forms. Um, so I think that's quite exciting. The fact that there's so much out there, and if you have access to it, um, yeah, it, it's, it, there's a world of possibilities out there to make all sorts of different art to get your point and ideas across. Um, so you say you start off from an idea. Could you explain more concretely what that is? So is it just a very basic concept? Is it the concept of the Chinese diaspora, or is it, you know, I'm doing a portrait today of my father who is specifically from the Chinese diaspora? Like, how specific is this idea? Yeah. So I, I mean, I say I'm exploring the cultural identity and heritage of the Chinese diaspora, mm. um, and I, I mentioned the first thing about 
Um, one of the first reasons why, you know, I've sort of gone public with my art is uh, just over the lockdown, I have time to invest in it. Um, but the second reason really is this long-term push I'm seeing at the moment for cultural diversity, you know, highlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I think, you know, at the moment, the best artists in the world are black artists because they really have something to say. Right. And I think that's great for, you know, the art industry as a whole because it opens the doors for so many different perspectives and new voices. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in the UK, at least, the population is about 80 percent, 81 percent white, but arts audiences themselves are 92 percent white. So right. it's sort of about bridging and closing that gap. Mm. And it became sort of clear to me as I as I went to more museums and art galleries and heard this sort of clamour for more cultural diversity in the arts, that there that was this and is this distinct lack of Asian representation in the cultural sphere. Mm. And I guess what that really does is it can be quite dangerous because it opens this vacuum for fear-mongering and misrepresentation. You know, I, I saw the racism mm. that was that happened towards the British Chinese community during the pandemic. Yeah. I think there is this sort of almost presumed passivity amongst the British Chinese community. We're not a big community by any means. Mm. I don't think we do a lot to help ourselves. Um, and we're sort of labelled the invisible minority because, you know, we're not really visible in culture or in politics. Um, no, I, I agree. I mean, I'm... I'm part of the Indian British community, yeah. and I th- I'd say we're probably more more visible. I mean, we're we're more in number, but I think we're slightly more visible than the Chinese community. But mm. but I guess similarly, just from an Asian broader perspective, where I think we're both similarly underrepresented in kind of at least fine arts or or the kind of art that people um that people when you when you ask someone about art on the street, I feel you know that they're imagining you know Renaissance paintings and galleries. Yeah. And 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 I feel like in that context, I, most minority communities are underrepresented. Yeah. So I guess I guess the next question is, could you expand further on on why you'd want to why why your subject is the Chinese diaspora, mm. and secondly, um, how you think that relates to perceptions of art by the average person, perhaps as something which is not for them, or or something which is of the upper white classes. Um, as, at least that's a perspective that a lot of people have of art in society. Mm. I mean, just dealing with that last point, the fact that I mean, perhaps art is seen as something that's you know you've got to be highly privileged to take part in yes and, exactly. and when you go to art and galleries you know you, you see people who are you know, middle class upper class whatever yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that's one of the benefits of having something like Instagram I think you know Instagram has huge problems you, you know all about the mental health problems but when it comes to mm-hmm. something like sharing art yeah I've sort of witnessed um, just like in recent months when I've got um, more involved and started following more art accounts is that there is so much out there there's so many people who are you know, trying to push new voices into the art industry and have something to say. Um, so I think, you know, something like Instagram is a great platform um, and an equalising platform sort of for people to push their voices out. And I hope what we'll see, especially, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with more black artists getting representation in galleries, is that sort of transition from, you know, Instagram to, you know, your institutional cultural museum spaces. Yeah. Yeah. But I think... So coming back to what I want to say about the, I mean, the Chinese diaspora. So yeah, one hand, I'm interested in reaching out to a more general audience. Um, like I say, this lack of Asian representation in the cultural sphere. So reaching out to people and show them my experience and hopefully, um, especially other minorities, and what I say will resonate with them. But I guess I'm also interested in actually reaching out to the British Chinese community and the Chinese diaspora itself um, and sort of encouraging people, I guess, to reconnect with their Chinese culture and their cultural heritage, mm. a lot of which I feel is deeply ingrained and almost unconscious in how yeah. we've raised and the values we've been taught. 
So I think what happens a lot of the time is, you know, you grow up in a Western country and what you do is you sort of resist, um, you resist Chinese culture, you resist the culture of your parents because you want to integrate and that's sort of natural, right? But then, so I'll I'll illustrate it using this um, story of a guy called William Yang, who's a third generation Chinese-Australian photographer. Right. And he basically, um, he felt Australian, he identified his feelings of living and identifying with Australians. But then the fact is that he looks very different, right? Yeah. So he calls it like the tyranny of appearance. The fact that, you know, he wants to be Australian and he feels Australian, but he's got, he he fundamentally looks different. And the values that he's been brought up with, things like the food he's eaten at home are different to other Australians. Yeah. And I think that term, the tyranny of of appearance, sort of captures it very well. Mm. But I think... No, I I think I definitely relate, obviously. Um, Sorry, carry on. Yeah, but I was saying what, what sort of what's more interesting to me is that how he actually later discovers when he gets older, he, he discovers and studies Chinese philosophy and art. Mm. And he describes visiting China. So this is back in the 1980s as a really powerful experience for him. And I think the story of William Yang sort of captures um, this idea of the born again Chinese who sort of recover their lost heritage and sort of come to embrace actually their cross cultural experience. Yeah. And the fact that it's a positive thing that they have, you know, an understanding of multiple cultures. Yeah. I think that sort of journey from sort of resisting um, Chinese culture and then coming back to re- recover it um, and want to sort of embrace it more mm. is, is one I've certainly experienced. And I think it's it's not experienced by everyone, but I think it does resonate with a lot of people I know in sort of the British Chinese community. I mean, you yourself come from two cultures being yeah. just Indian. I guess what is your relationship with India and Indian heritage? My relationship with kind of India is, it's quite similar to William Yang's, as you said. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, eating. So the thing is, my I'm third generation as well. So my parents were born in the UK as well. And yeah. my grandparents were, they came here in 1960s. So, so they fully, you know, they can pretty much speak English as well. So so if, if, if I kind of, in certain ways, I'm not really beyond the way I look, um, um, you know, I don't really retain a lot of that classic Indian culture you might see from someone yeah. who was a more kind of recent recent arrival sure. um, but what I do have as, as as William Yang kind of said is is I do you know have this idea obviously I look very different um, and um, I obviously ate, ate some different food uh, yeah. to some other people yeah but I guess it's <laughs> about kind of Indian and Chinese culture which I guess you can relate with is that especially from the food perspective there are kind of pale anglo imitations of our food in the takeaway kind of sector sure so so although so although like we have you know the food that you and i ate at home that would probably be quite different to the kind of food that that people would associate as being indian or chinese in the kind of friday night restaurant that someone might go to in the uk yeah so so that that kind of mirrors my overall cultural identity in the sense that my perception of what it is to be indian as a person was something which was not really relatable to people who aren't really from that joint british asian community yeah. or just from the asian community in that their ideas of what it is to be indian just as if just like their ideas of indian food are kind of slightly different i wouldn't say warped but but just slightly different kind of almost anglicized versions pale pale imitations of the of the real thing so, yeah. so when i did so when i did go to india i found it to be quite an enlightening experience going to you know parts where uh things you take for granted in the uk are um you know you, you just merely don't have there such so as hot water for, from taps and stuff yeah. like that where, where essentially that leads to a completely different lifestyle because you approach life 
in a completely different way without the same necessities. And then and then and then, and then in contrasting, you know, the massive metropolis cities, which I guess illustrate the future of, of global kind of prominence, which I'm sure you can relate to with China. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, how did you feel about I mean, I, I'm sure you relate on a lot of those points with your Chinese identity, just because the British and Chinese communities in the Indian and Chinese communities in the UK, I think, share a lot of of these kind of issues. Um, and, and, and I know you visited China, I think, three years ago. So, I mean, that must have impacted you in your art. Yeah, for sure. I think you sort of mentioned that there's a sort of hybrid culture right, where you're not you don't feel fully. Perhaps you don't feel fully British or you perhaps you don't feel fully Indian or Chinese. Yeah, yeah you're somewhere in the middle. To, when you go back to like India, um, you, some people perhaps feel alienated because they don't feel like they belong there. Um, but for me, I think it was pretty powerful, especially when you think of, you know, we talked about food, which plays a big role. And, you know, you eat the food um, of, of Shanghai or whatever. And then. Um, just like like understanding that this is a place where you know I've heard all these stories, um, yeah. about, and I think it's powerful in that sense. Um, yeah, so I, I would say it was a pretty powerful experience for me, um, and sort of captured that that cross cultural experience where, for me, it wasn't a completely alienating thing, but I, I thought it was quite a positive thing where I could understand a good deal of Chinese culture. Obviously, there were problems with language and things because I'm essentially illiterate, right? yeah in Chinese um but knowing that you know I, I have this ability to understand a good deal of Chinese culture and also British culture is a, is a pretty positive thing I mean yeah. for me I mean I, I, there was that kind of issue where I felt I'm sure you relate again because we're both third generation Asian um Asians in Britain yeah in the sense that sometimes you do feel lost in between both cultures so when you're when you're in Britain um you know you still don't look British yeah and then and then when or you don't look white and then and then when you go to India or China, although you might look kind of more like the people there, you are you you retain, you know, substantially like most of your characteristics and everyday everyday kind of actions are European and British. Your your primary language is, is British. So mm. it's kind of like you don't fit in either place. Exactly. I think, you know, without wanting to sound too intellectual and bring up homie homie Baba who, <laughs> who Go know, on. <laughs> but he basically says, um, you know, you occupy this third space basically in between yeah. sort of this interstitial space where your identity lies in between these sort of two nationalities. But I, I guess the sort of idea I want to put across is that that's not a bad thing. It's going to be quite quite an empowering thing um, and a really positive thing because you ha- you know have this ability to understand your cultures, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I. I, I guess so, and I, I think your art then is, is art as, as a general medium is is quite important. You'd say for for that kind of communication of culture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This these sort of um, ideas of wanting to um, reconnect with my Chinese heritage plays a big part, um, sort of in my art. Definitely is one mm. one of the key ideas, I guess, in that. So, so how did you visiting China then really impact you specifically, and and what other artists have you come across that really inspired you? Mm. Um, you know, I, I'd say probably visiting China was powerful for me, but um, in terms of my art, my art from a sort of British Chinese perspective, probably, you know, would be quite similar if I hadn't visited China three years ago, I guess, because right. um, I still feel, you know, that I've been brought up in Britain with um, different values, perhaps to my mm. friends, eating different food, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if I'm um, talking about different artists, I guess I mentioned earlier that I think the best artists working at the moment are black artists. So I actually identify a lot with other black artists who are exploring issues of race, history, yeah. and identity, right? Because I think 
perhaps largely that's because there are so few Asian artists working on those issues. Certainly that, not that you would see in museums and galleries. I know on Instagram there are plenty, um, but really eminent artists. And I mentioned Yinka Shonobari earlier. He's, he's one of my favorite artists. Um, so just to introduce him, he is a, a British Nigerian artist who explores issues of race and class and sort of questions our notions of authenticity. So he um, was um, born in London, I think, and then went back to Lagos and then came back to study in, in London. And when yeah. he was studying, one of his professors basically said to him, why aren't you making African art? <laughs> Which we think about that now, that's a really prejudiced thing. To yeah, say. no, it is. It's prejudiced assumption. Yeah. Yeah. But it got him thinking, right, what is, what is African art? And, yeah. and so through thinking about that, he, he sort of found this batik fabric. And if you've seen any of um, Yinka Shonobari's work, mm. you, you'll know that batik fabric um, is a key sort of medium that he uses, key fabric. And so it's all that colourful fabric that most people generally associate with Africa. If you go to Lagos, yeah. um, see markets where people are selling these fabrics, right? But Shonobari made this discovery that, you know, these are actually Indonesian fabrics. So they originate in Indonesia but they were produced by the Dutch East India Company wow, and, then, okay. and then introduced to the West African market. So right, the idea so, of authenticity is then completely blurred yes. because, you know, the fabric is not originally African, but it has sort of been assimilated into this sort of cliched African cultural identity. Almost like, almost like him being assimilated into the British identity. Yeah, I guess, I guess so as well, because you look at him and you wouldn't know he's British Nigerian. You might just yeah. assume he's, he's, he's black, he's African. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he questions, he urges the viewer to ask, you know, at what point does it become, you know, authentically African? And it yeah. kind of builds into, you know, there's no such real thing as authenticity because, you know, authenticity is all about purity of origin, right? And right. nothing completely pure in origin. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting statement just because um, I find some of the debate around um, cultural identity and almost racial identity slightly asinine or mm -hmm. just, just unwelcome in the sense that, beyond its kind of divisive nature, um, although it's important to obviously know and respect where you came from and, and know your own identity as you and I, are, as you've explored in your art and as, as I've said as well, some of it is slightly arbitrary in that um, I feel like there are a lot more things in common between people in the world than there, than, than there are different. And yeah. you'll yeah. often find that you're far less connected to a place than you thought you were just because, you know, your your own kind of, just because, you know, everyone eventually kind of came from the same place. Mm. And, and and you can make arbitrary decisions about how many years you want to go back to decide where you're from. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I, I feel that there is a lot more. I feel like that that is, although it's obviously important to recognize cultural and quaint things, um, the, the, the the kind of divisive, divisive consequences of that, I, I think, are important to at least at least be aware of. No, I do agree. I think, you know, cultural identity is not the be all and end all. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe that there's much more to who you are. And just your cultural identity yeah but i don't think you can deny that it's quite important to a lot, a lot of people understand themselves um, yes exactly and i guess you know it comes out to what art is like bruce lee who's unfortunately being caricatured into this sort of martial arts kicking guy but actually he was a great philosopher and he wrote a lot and he identified art as the expression of the self right and it's where you're projecting this inner vision into a world without and for me sort of that inner vision um and what Pay, what makes up a lot of myself I guess is that cultural identity um so that you know I don't think it's the be all and end all but I, I and I do think it can be um can be arbitrary 
I do think it makes up a lot of how people see and understand themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I know I think that's that's really valuable. So, I mean, um, you've spoken then about the kind of things that inspired you, why why it's precisely painting, why you're talking about the Chinese diaspora. So I think it's, it's now an opportune time to just jump into some specific pieces that are on your Instagram. As I said, um, I'll, I'll link it in the description of the video on YouTube and, and in the Spotify description for the episode. Um, mm. Um, but um, yeah, let's just jump into some pieces. So the first one I'd like to engage with is one that I remember you painting um, three years ago, <laughs> um, and it was your father—it's it's father oil on canvas, which is a beautiful canvas painting of um, your father. Um, just describing it to listeners, he's, he's wearing a, a kind of blue shirt with buildings in the in a kind of cubic style in the background that I assume he's kind of um, had a part in designing. Um, the background is a lively brush horizontal brushed green and kind of turquoise color sorry a green and kind of lime green color with some lower darker blues that really bring out the kind of um colors of of Kayla's father's face in the foreground um so yeah Kayla, Kayla talk to us about this piece why did you paint it what does it mean to you who how did it what how were you inspired to paint it <laughs> yeah I mean well this this piece is the first point, point out it's not really to do with the Chinese diaspora it's sort of just a painting of my dad really <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. So I, I mean, this piece was created at the end of sort of the IB, right? When I was studying visual art, so I was investigating. Yes, know, I remember color and form and um, geometry, especially in portraits. Um, so this was sort of the culmination of that. Um, painting a picture of my dad, who's an architect, so I included some of his architectural drawings in the background. Um, I, I mean, I sort of included that on my Instagram because it's a nice painting, right? But mm. I guess it's not. Uh, it's not. Um, completely connected to I, I guess I sort of moved on and developed my understanding of what I want to do with my art yeah. um, which I guess you, you can see later um, but yeah that that piece is really just a combination of of that of that where I was at at that time studying at school. <laughs> mm. No okay that's really interesting so let's actually move on to then one of the Chinese diaspora yeah. paintings <laughs> which is let's start with the first one which is a um, portrait collage Johnny which is a paper collage and acrylic on, on canvas yeah. um, um and it basically for to describe it to listeners it's quite hard to describe but it's essentially a picture of um a, a chinese man with a collage of essentially chinese takeaway menus on his face interspersed with beautiful red and black patterns um kayla i'm sure you yeah. do a better job of describing it than i can please, please talk to me about it yeah so it's a yeah it's a it's a collage portrait of one of my friends called johnny he's a british chinese guy and he's um, the portrait is made of, of basically, like you said, Chinese takeaway leaflets. So we talked earlier about how important food is really um, to the diaspora, to both to the Indian diaspora and to the Chinese diaspora. Yeah. That work sort of came about by me thinking, you know, there's this really high pro- proportion of the British Chinese population involved in the food industry. And um, there's a long history of, you know, Chinese takeaways in this country. Um, my granddad moved to Britain. Um, from Guangdong in South China in the 1970s and he set up a Chinese restaurant um, and he's very keen to remind me of how grueling his lifestyle was and the sacrifices he made. Yeah, yeah, similarly, um, similarly. <laughs> yeah, I, and it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's true, very much true. I wouldn't have been able to experience so many of the opportunities I've had. No, you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think frustrating for me was that, you know, takeaways are typically looked down upon really as mm. these really dirty and quite unfriendly places. I think perhaps that's more prevalent in America than in Britain, but I do yeah. think the idea does exist here. 
I think it's ingrained in the idea of you know Chinese people, places, and food are sort of dirty, which is I guess rooted in the history of the Chinese diaspora and their hard labor jobs in America before they were sort of pushed out to laundry and restaurant businesses. Yeah. So the work is, you know, trying to reclaim that that pride, I guess, in um, the the community's shared heritage in these um, restaurants. You know, which I mean, you, you mentioned your granddad speaks pretty good English, but my granddad, my granddad's English is still very poor. So right. Okay. You know, imagine him coming to this country. Really, um, he still doesn't speak very good English at all. Really, um, and he regrets not learning. But it's you know, he came he came over by himself first. And then um, my grandma and my dad came along later. But it's, you know, it's a huge sacrifice and it's difficult for us now, I know, to try and understand what that must have been like. Right. But yeah, the college is about sort of reclaiming um, that pride in in what those takeaways sort of stand for um, and remove that idea of them being looked down upon, really. Yeah, I mean, I find that really interesting. So do you feel that the the takeaways and the kind of views that they propagate in society whether it's about the health the healthiness of the food or just the the kind of cleanliness of the places the kind of stereotypical takeaways not viewed on favorably as you say do you think those kind of views then spilled over into a characterization of the chinese diaspora in general yeah i think so i i definitely think so i mean um you know especially in america where you have the chinese exclusion act um and all sorts of propaganda against Chinese people because they, you know, they're apparently taking up all the, all the jobs of the American. Um, I definitely think it it did spill over into these sort of stereotypes, um, that we've seen. Yeah. So, so what kind of, uh, what are you trying to say with this, with this art and this specific piece that, because, so, so you have the kind of the collage of the menus and it's interspersed with, with Johnny's face. So are you kind of trying to say that, that, um, it actually is a very important part of his identity, but it's not something that he should be ashamed of. It's not something that should be viewed negatively. It should be viewed something as positive and part of the kind of industrious yeah. or enterprising nature of the Chinese diaspora. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah. Take I pride, mean, lot, take pride, you know, should, something you should take pride in. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of um, Chinese people in the British Chinese community actually grew up in takeaways. I didn't, but I know a lot of people did. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they try and shun it. It's again, it's like that idea of resistance that we we're talking about earlier. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's about taking sort of ownership and appreciation of that, and um, the wider the wider ideas of what those places stand for, in terms of the sacrifices um, of that first wave of immigrants. Really, I mean, I guess, what uh, what is your sort of view of like Indian takeaways? I don't know if your family were ever involved. Well, in so, that. so this is the interesting thing about this. Um, I'll, I won't I won't go too long on it, but but it's interesting just because um. So, so what is actually essentially the basic Indian takeaway you'll find in the UK isn't actually usually run by Indian people. It's usually run by Bangladeshis. Okay, yeah. Indians who actually came either were professionals in some way or other and, and became, you know, worked in the NHS as doctors or um, worked in like the legal professions or or whatever kind of professional jobs. Or they worked in kind of factories doing hard labor or and a lot of them obviously founded, you know, corner shops and and clothes shops. Yeah. My, my, my grandfather on one side did a clothes shop um, after after doing hard labor and, and being anything from a bus conductor to a pub landlord before that. Yeah. And then my grandfather on the other side was actually um, a fully qualified mechanic when he came. So he uh-huh. had skill, so he had skills. And he founded his own garage and he bought a petrol station franchise on the side. Oh, yeah. So. So, so it's all kind of it's, it's very entrepreneurial. Very few of them actually, I find, work in the public sector, mm. other than in medicine. Other mm. than in medicine, yeah. um, 
and they ended up a lot of them finding a founding as, as a Chinese diaspora did businesses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting just because I guess food restaurants are central to the kind of Chinese diaspora in the UK, but they're kind of not to the Indian diaspora in the sense that it, they're run by usually by people from Bangladesh anyway. Oh, um, yeah. And um, a lot of Indians I know actually never really go to an Indian restaurant at all. They, they just much rather eat at home. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of differences, I, I suppose. But I guess um, the, the point in general about your kind of job or kind of racial or, or kind of discriminatory stereotypes about your community being kind of bled over from your job, I guess, do kind of apply to the Indian community in the same way in the regards to their labor jobs and the kind of accommodation that they were living in. Mm-hmm. But then in other ways, they don't, because obviously they occupied some positions of respectability, like like medicine. Um which I guess leads to some differences between the communities. But I mean, I really applaud what you're doing with this specific art, just in about ensuring kind of pride in where you came from. <laughs> and I think that, that the first wave of whatever immigrants, really, whether it be the Afro-Caribbeans, Chinese or the Indians who came, yeah. or, you know, any of the South Asians who came in the 1960s and 70s, the kind of Windrush generation, they all worked very hard and grafted away so that their children would be better off. And I think... Um, Children of those immigrants is you and I and, and millions of others um, ought to be mindful of that and respectful of that. So, yeah, I, I am I'm massively grateful to both my grand to all four of my grandparents for kind of what they've done for me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, moving on, I think um, is you've done it. You've done this. You've done this collage, I think, three times. The second one was called Lucy. Yeah. Um, are there any kind of differences here that you would like to highlight? Johnny is kind of more interspersed with red red background heavily red on the face lucy is more kind of bluish um with some red interspersed um are there any kind of specific creative choices behind that yeah so i guess there's two things at play here one is sort of the chinese takeaway leaflets the other is um sort of these beijing opera masks which right. is much more prevalent in in sort of the work you see later you know the the um the opera masks portraits mm. but it's sort of the colors and the patterns um, used in the masks of traditional Chinese opera. So just as a, like a side note, I just really like Chinese opera. I think, um, you know, it combines music, singing, acrobatics, martial arts. It's not very well known in the West, but it's also got these, you know, these brilliant costumes. And they basically paint um, these sort of colourful masks on their face when they perform. Mm. So the sort of motif of these opera masks is something that I'm, I'm really interested in because I use it just to kind of show two things. Firstly, um, you know, how the British Chinese are sort of somewhat this invisible minority, the fact that they're sort of hidden behind a mask, that you, yeah. know, you, you look at a Chinese person, you have no idea if he's, just by looking, right, whether he's um, British, Chinese or whatever, and, you know, you're just simply assumed to be Chinese because of the way you look. Yes. And I think it's easy to feel quite uncomfortable with that, but I think there is a point where, you know, you start to see it as a positive thing, um, like I was saying, you're a hybrid of, of two cultures. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. I think the, the second thing I wanted to suggest really is, you know, this inclination of British Chinese people to sort of reconnect with their Chinese heritage um, and embrace Chinese culture, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and I think sort of, you know, the opera masks, they sort of, to me, represent, so I use them to sort of represent Chinese culture. They're, they're a very traditional form of um, Chinese performance. They've been performed since sort of ancient times. Mm. Um, have a long history and they're still performed in China today. So does the mask kind of represent then the anonymity of the, of the Chinese in Britain? Yeah, that, that's that's one of the ways I use it. It's sort of like a mask really to, to hide 
behind and well i guess there's a sense in which you know the british chinese community have sort of hidden behind it right because we're mm. not we haven't i don't think we've really pushed ourselves out there in terms of in terms of culture in terms of politics and many other fields um but also this fact that we are just hidden because of the way we look yeah no i completely understand um and I guess that kind of links to, I mean, it, I really recommend, again, that you look at the Taylor's Instagram here. It's it's really magnificent. But the, um, no, no, just because what I'm about to say in that the um, the paintings themselves of the takeaway, the takeaway collages, the kind of takeaway menus act as a mask on the faces, which might also show that the kind of Chinese community are being hidden behind these kind of stereotypes based on um, a job that a lot of them do. Mm. And then the stereotypes of the kind of job that... Um, that they do i.e that as you say the poor reputation that takeaways may hold are then used to mask you know the true kind of more positive characteristics that chinese people have and the takeaway menus are acting as a mask just as the chinese opera masks are acting as masks yeah no i think that's a really helpful insight ashwin yeah that the the takeaways read really yeah the, the leaflets make up those masks so yeah it does suggest that those stereotypes are you know contributing to that idea of the chinese community being sort of hidden and being um, look down upon really because mm. they're associated with these stereotypically dirty places right mm. well i mean um the next painting i talk about is um, acrylic on canvas which is opera mask family so in yeah. this painting kayla has on the right a painted a a essentially just a, a, a chinese opera mask and on the left is a kind of face interspersed with chinese characters um it's less kind of vivid, except for it, the, most of the painting is less vivid than the kind of earlier works with the collages, except for the Chinese mask itself, which I guess, which is the most vivid and it's almost shiny, uh, luminescent, which kind of again shows to me the idea that um, that's what people see, that kind of mask, rather than the person hiding behind it, who is who is much less, much less visible, almost looks like it's being drawn by pencil at some in some areas. So yeah. could you please talk to me about kind of this piece and what it means for you and especially the idea of family? Yeah, so I guess there's three elements to this to this painting. There's the mask, the portrait, and then the Chinese calligraphic character. Yeah. Um, and like you say, I painted the mask in a much bolder way to sort of suggest um, what I've been saying about the mask, how it's, you know, like what you're saying, like this is what people see, um, and to you know, use it as a motif um, to, you know, encourage people to reconnect with the, with the Chinese heritage. Um, and then you've got the, the portrait of the of the of the young young boy um who, who's british chinese and then the the calligraphic character and i sort of used the calligraphy just to highlight other elements of chinese culture that i feel have been carried over into the chinese diaspora sort of cultural baggage um and i think you know a lot of that cultural baggage is unconscious it's just in the values that we've grown up with mm. i might never sort of acknowledge it perhaps but um, I think I have just because, you know, meeting other people at university, of course, you meet so many different people. Yeah. Realise, you know, the values that you have um, can be so different from the way other people have grown up and been sort of educated, perhaps. Um, so just that that character itself means family. And I think um, just on that family just plays the central role in, in Chinese culture and Chinese society, possibly more than in Britain. I think it's, it's well symbolised by, you know, in, in Chinese naming you place the family name, the surname in English first in Chinese. Um, so my Chinese name, Huang Chile. Huang is my is my family name. Yeah. So first of all, you're part of a family. 
um, rather than being seen as just this individual, you're part of family. That's first. so interesting. I'd not thought of I'm not thought of the reordering like in that sense before, but I guess it really shows the value of perhaps of Chinese family to your identity. Yeah, I think um, there is this very communal sense um, to Chinese culture. You know, you're part of this wider wider family, and within that, a hierarchy. Um, yeah. The the Chinese historian, well, the Chinese historian, the historian of China, actually an Indian historian of China, right? Oh, Ron, okay. You know, Rana Mitter, right? He uh, right, um, yeah. He says, you know, the Chinese language has no word, has no straight word for brother or sister, right? right. Instead, you are a jiejie, which is an older sister, a meimei, a younger sister, a gerge, an older brother, or a didi, which is a younger brother. Right. So it's all about this hierarchy within the family relationships, and the fact that those are sort of central. And I think a lot of that is, you know, rooted on Confucianism. Mm. We're talking about Chinese culture and society. We can't avoid talking about Confucianism, right? Because even though perhaps that, some people see that as a very archaic um, sort of form of moral guidance, it still plays, I think, a big role in how in the values of, of the China, of Chinese society and yeah. comes across in that cultural baggage in which, you know, I've certainly grown up with and in which the Chinese diaspora, I think a lot of them grow up with this um values of confucianism one of which is you know filial piety which in itself is sort of the sacrificial respect for your elders right yes no and does that then link sorry if i just come across this comes across as ignorant obviously i don't know much about this but does right. it does it does it come does that link to the ideas of ancestor worship and um or even while your ancestors are living just during your lives being perhaps a more kind of subservient um and um, just very respectful in a way that is quite apparent in Indian culture, but perhaps less so to your elders in, in European culture. Yeah, definitely. I think filial piety is definitely connected with ancestor worship for sure. Actually, mm. when I went back to uh, China, this was about five years ago, maybe even more, but I went to my um, granddad's hometown. So the granddaddy came here instead of a restaurant, right? And we yes. went, basically went to do ancestor worship, which, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I just did it sort of for the fun of it, really. But so we climbed up this mountain and you led off all these firecrackers and it took us quite a long time to get up this mountain. Right. And we led off pretty much 90% of the firecrackers. Mm-hmm. Great, wow. Right. And yeah. Really loud. Incredibly loud. I was quite frightened at the time. I think it was more than five years ago. I was quite young. But basically as we were, as we were letting off the firecrackers, they realized that we were at the wrong grave. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, just be worshiping. Well, I don't know if it's worshiping. I think it's more paying respect to yeah, someone else's someone, someone else's else. answers. <laughs> and and then we went. I think we finally got to the right grave, and then there weren't, weren't many firecrackers left. So poor guy in his grave was like, can't kind of been too pleased. No, no, that, that's quite a beautiful and quite funny story. Um, <laughs> I know. I, I think I'm really interested in this idea of um, the kind of indivisible unit. So traditional Western, especially kind of Anglo-Saxon thought. Um, and kind of classical liberalism would suggest that the indivisible unit is the individual, like the as a sovereign person, looking at ideas of, from John Locke and John Stuart Mill. Mm. But but, you know, what's kind of in, in kind of Indian and, I, and now I know Chinese culture, the indivisible unit is the family unit, the nuclear family, usually, you know, parents and just parents and kids or sometimes even three generations, quite frequently three generations, which is mm. why you get kind of multi-generational households in Asian cultures. Um and yeah. I just find it just find it very interesting about how how that, how that you know is kind of con, how how, the, the, how those ideas compare and contrast because they do influence very heavily the way you behave and that if your kind of primary unit of concern is yourself and just yourself I think inevitably for better or for worse you'll behave differently to someone whose primary concern includes 
you know, three or four other people at least. And those other three or four other people might be, you know, very similar to you. They, you're closest people in the world, but they're still other people. And the fact that they are other people and still part of this indivisible unit means that you can never exist alone, which is one, I think, interesting concept. And secondly, that every action you take, you take thinking about those other people. I think that's so true. I think I think a great ways we've seen that really with mask wearing over the sort of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. You go to pre-COVID Japan. Of course, Japan is very much rooted in Confucianism, brought over from China. Yes. Um, you know, you would have seen you know, most people wearing masks, right? Because mask wearing is, you know, is to look out and care for and help other people primarily, mm. isn't it? Um, and, you know, in, in the UK, we, we haven't been very good with mask wearing, really. And then you look at, you know, the figures and, you know, Japan has a population twice the size of the UK, but has 45 times less deaths. Yeah. So I think mask- and, and, and far more older, far more, far more very old people as well, <laughs> who you think would be more more kind of uh, vulnerable. Yeah. But I, I do think just mask wearing does actually illustrate that point quite well. You know, yeah, that, that is that sort of sacrificial element of looking out for the community rather than just looking after yourself yeah no i think that's really interesting um so just moving on to kind of your second last piece that i want to talk about it's opera mask courage so again we have an opera mask on the right which is very vivid versus the less vivid face on the left the Mm. opera mask on the right this time is not uh black red and white but is kind of black red and white but with interspersed with, with like blue interspersed as well and a slightly different kind of pattern to um, the family mask. Um, the face, obviously, on the left is slightly different, and the Chinese character is is again interspersed, but but again something different. I assume it means courage. Yeah. Could you talk about Could you talk about this piece and how courage relates to Confucianism, as you've written in the Instagram description there? Yeah. So um, I guess courage, Confucianism, conf, sorry, Confucius himself and the Analects didn't really talk that much about courage. Right. It was picked up a lot by you know, the philosophers Mencius and Shunzi, who I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but they pr- both praise courage as, you know, this virtue of great men and noble characters. So, oh, you mean the art of war? So, no, no, no. It's oh, a, right. a Z, I'm oh, sorry, X-U-N-Z-I. Right. Um, so, yeah, not, not Sun Tzu, but a different different uh, philosopher, really. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Confucius, uh, courage, I guess, does play a big part um, in, in Chinese culture, especially visual culture. Because um, in, in Chinese visual culture, you have these popular motifs of the tiger and the lion, um, very much associated with courage. And I guess what I did include in that little description is also, you know, the courage it takes. We talked about that first wave of immigrants coming across. And um, I guess this is also about the courage for them um, to make that move and, and to come across to a completely new country. Um, so I guess multiple meanings in that as well. Hmm. Yeah. So is that does that kind of then link to perhaps the ideas you spoke about earlier of, or as you said, coming to a new country, but then perhaps toler, perhaps being even while well, even after you arrive, you know, surviving in, in it, what would be quite difficult existence at the start and being quite enterprising? I definitely think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, coming to a new country without knowing the language, um, you know, trying to interact with people. My granddad would tell me, you know, how he saw all these fights happening in the Chinese restaurants. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not always a, a, an accommodating experience. No. So, so, do, so, did your grandfather? Is is it quite an important part of Chinese identity to aspire to be one of these noble characters um, that are demonstrated in the kind of Confucian philosophy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I guess it depends who you ask, really. Right. Uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the best place to, to talk about that. But I mean, you could talk about your own experience, I guess, that, with the most authority. My, well, my idea of Confucian values um, is more to do with respect for one's elders, I right. would say, over, over courage. Um, for me, I guess, it hasn't played a huge um, role, but I'm sure for others, you know, um, maybe in China itself, it would have played a bigger role. So, I mean, coming back to Confucianism, um, I guess it forms a foundation of a lot of, of value structures in China. I was just wondering, is there a similar sort of value structure in India? Um, well, well, there's the um, well, it depends because India then is very multi-ethnic. Yeah. I think yeah. uh, it's quite different to China in that regard because the Chinese have a lot of the Han Chinese who dominate the kind of overall population. Yeah. Um, and you do have some minorities, but India is genuinely very ethnically diverse. It's it's not really a singular country. It's it's actually a lot of countries just stitched together. It's yeah. only really been a single country for a hundred for for about for about 170, 180 years. Before that, it was it's separate princely states really, um, with all of their own languages and everything else. So it then depends which part of India you go to to have this kind of base identity. So I guess the answer to your question is no. Mm-hmm. But but then there is obviously the unifying identity of the kind of Vedic culture from 10,000 years ago, which spawned Hinduism, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, which are the kind of the main books of Hinduism, main stories, which um, are themselves, you know, ancient Vedic stories based on kind of um, migrants who came to India from Ukrainian steppe culture, um, almost like from the Central Asian plateau, rather than coming from, you know, South India, who were kind of pre-existing Dravidian people. Um, these people arrived in India after those earlier settlers and established Vedic culture, which I guess established things like the caste system yeah. uh, and and the, the stories of the Ramayana, etc., which which do influence Indian culture today. But mm-hmm. whether we have but whether we have a kind of singular philosopher like sure. Confucius or, or even Homer in the Greek context, I don't think so, as far as I'm aware. But these stories, regardless of who they're written by, were are all kind of um, very much the base of the Indian identity, I think, especially if you associate the Indian identity with Hinduism, which I personally don't. I think that's sure. a very dangerous mistake. But if you were to do that and you were to see India as a kind of Hindustan, then that, that, that would be the basis of your identity. Um, but I guess that's a kind of interesting contrast. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, just the final piece I want to talk about then is is actually very aptly enough um, called respect because it links to what you've been talking about in terms of respecting your elders was an important part of your experience of Confucian culture. Yeah. Um, obviously, this one is similar to the others in that it has a vivid mask on the right with um, this time pink, um, black and white with vivid red lips. And there's an elderly Chinese lady on the left, um, again, interspersed with um, Chinese characters, um, obviously slightly um, less vivid than the mask due to the reasons that we've, we've kind of said. Um, so, yeah, Kayla, talk to me about this. This links to what you said about being the most important aspects of Confucianism to you. Yeah, I mean, so that, that portrait is actually of my grandma um, who came over um, after my granddad. Right. Um, who set up the Chinese restaurant. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, I guess the ideas of respect do kind of tie up what we've been talking about. Um, respect in terms of a filial party, that respect, that dutiful and sort of sacrificial respect for your elders. Yes. Um, I think respect also, and I mentioned this um, in the description, also um, conveys this idea of face. Now, face is like a really complex um, concept in Chinese culture. It's, it can be, I guess, loosely translated as dignity. 
Right. Um, it governs a lot of Chinese social interactions. So it's um, sort of the respect and you pay someone. Um, and it's quite difficult to, ex to express. We don't have anything really um, in, in British culture, certainly, that, that's similar. Right. Um, but it's, it's sort of the respect you pay someone in a social interaction. And, and it can be given and lost um, in a similar way. Mm. And that then links to kind of the idea that you should adhere to the social code that respects your elders and and, um, and basically, you know, you maintain your own dignity by respecting the dignity of people who are elder and more knowledgeable than you are. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's um, again, yeah, that filial piety, that respect for your elders that, you know, I don't think it exists so much in Britain, which is, you know, quite a big shame. Um, I'm not I'm not, I'm not saying that people in Britain don't care for the elderly I mean that's obviously not true but um, just bound up in Chinese culture is this intense duty um, and, and, and sacrificial um, duty you have to your, to your elders of looking after them a lot of you know just I guess just like in a lot of um, Indian families the families live together because yeah um, the elders the older people live um, in, the, in the same building um, as the rest of the family so it's like that duty of care um, almost that exists mm. and in Chinese yeah culture. I mean, it's a bit of a social taboo. No, no Indian family I know would ever send their their relatives to a care home, for yeah. example. I think that would be the ultimate kind of social taboo or disrespect. Yeah, um, in the so. sense that it, it's the it's the usually the son, but but the child in general, it's usually their responsibility to look after their parents until their parents die. Yeah. Um, and there's this idea of kind of this it, it rooted quite a lot in Hindu culture, mm. where um you have this family that. Of, of you know middle-aged parents that that moved their parents into this kind of shed outside the house um and um you have the idea of their grandchild starting to build a structure outside um you know his house and his parents come home i.e the 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 the, the, the uh the children of the of the grandparents outside come in the the, the grandson's parents yeah. they come in and they say to the to the to the son um or the child um, you know, what are you doing? What are you building? And he said, well, I'm I'm building your shed where you're going to live when you're old. And his parents are horrified. Um, and, and you know, then that links to the idea that you should kind of keep keep look after your your parents um, until you until you um, until they die. Yeah. And and, yeah. and um, you know, it's, 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 it's linked in very much to a sense of duty that I guess isn't really found anymore in the West. After this, I, I, the closest I think I can find it to is a kind of duty to your state that you find in um some parts of the communist culture or some parts of um kind of pre-world war one continental imperialist cultures whether it's prussia or austria hungary or russia those yeah. kind of cultures which have an intense duty to the state where you you can square you are willingly conscripted in order to give your life to the state should it be necessary that kind of intense duty is the only thing i can compare asian duty to to kind of your familial elders because mm. the kind of familial duty in the same way doesn't exist in the uk but, you know, I'm not saying it, that's a bad thing. I mean, it's just different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not not saying anything pejoratively. I'm not intending to either. Sure. Yeah. Me neither. I mean, yeah. It's just it's just different. I mean, I think that's what we want to um, highlight. You know, highlight. Yeah. That the, the difference between the cultures because I think you know something that art can do incredibly well is increase empathy, right? And if you have a, a curiosity about different cultures um, and want to understand different cultures, and it's been really interesting hearing about you know your experience of being British Indian. No, thank you for asking. I don't really talk about it very much, but yeah. I thought, but no, because you asked, I decided to um, I know, provide been, my answer. Yeah, but I think, yeah, it does increase, you know, your empathy and your understanding for the people um, and where they're coming from. And empathy is, you know, something that's just sorely needed 
um, in the world at the moment. Well, thank you very much. Uh, just final word, not related to really your art, just a quick couple of sentences, if you could, on um, the best advice you have for someone who feels creativity, feels that they're a creative person, that's something, sorry, feels that they're a creative person that has something to offer. What is the best way for them to kind of engage with that? What's the best way for them, the best way for them to find a medium? What advice do you have for anyone who wants to become an artist but has no idea of how to go about it? I'm not sure if I'm the best place to give that. I mean, I'm just starting out on my journey. <laughs> but I think, you know, if you if you want to be creative, you know, I guess the things I would say is empathy, uh, curiosity, um, and just a, a determinism to go for it, right? And cur- uh, creativity is so easy to express. Like I was saying at the moment with Instagram, there's... Um, you know a great platform for sharing art um, for being inspired by other people so and with museums and galleries starting to reopen you know we're so lucky to live you know we're so lucky to live in a culture where we have so much freedom to engage in these things you look at what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment and I think it just reminds me not to take freedom for granted Um, I mean I'll finish on a word by Bruce Lee (laughs) one of my one of my heroes he says you know art lives what absolute freedom is you know, because where it is not, there can be no creativity. Kayla, um, thank you very much. Um, no, thank you. Thank you very much, Ashwin. No, um, I've really enjoyed the chat. And obviously, it's very meaningful for me. I'm actually very quite an emotional chat, you know, engaging with myself as well as with you. And it's obviously been a pleasure. And, and thank you so much. And I'm very happy to do this again whenever you want to. Um, yeah. And thank you as well for listening to the Symposium New Art Series. Delighted to start the series. As you can tell, it's just quite meaningful to those who will be involved in it. Um, and it's exactly what I wanted to do when I started the podcast in terms of engaging with the interesting stuff that my friends do. Um, I thank Kayla again for his time. Um, again, I'd just like to say that we're on Spotify. Uh, the link is in our Instagram bio, and also the link to Kayla's Instagram will be in the description for the YouTube video of this pod and um, in the Spotify description for this pod episode. Um, please do follow the Spotify link. You'll be able to uh, listen to all our episodes, and if you follow that link, you'll see the links to all our other platforms whether that's youtube or google podcasts or anywhere else uh the instagram is the symposium podcast and it's the same on all the other social medias too so thank you so much and see you next time on an episode from the symposium thanks the symposium with ash orlap